Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles this morning and go with me to Mark chapter number 11, the book of Mark and chapter 11, as we continue to walk our way through the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. You're going to need it this morning. Mark chapter 11. And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 11 this morning. And we're going to be verse number 1 down to verse number 11. Mark 11, 1 to 11. Before we read, let me ask you a question. What would it look like if God was in charge? If God, if God was here, what would it look like? What would be different in your mind? If God lived in your home, what would be different? If God showed up to church this morning, what would, what would be different? I ask that question often to people, and it's kind of funny, all, all the, the different answers that you'll hear or receive. Some people like to, to be funny. They'll say things like, well, if God were here, we'd have better coffee in Sunday school. You know? <laughs> Some people settle for something more uh, uh, superfluous. They say, well, if God was here, people would be nicer to people. Every now and then, you, you get somebody who'll be honest. And they'll say something like, well, if God was here, well, then my loved one wouldn't have died. Or I wouldn't have cancer. Or no one would ever get sick. It comes as a shock to people, really, when they realize that the Bible, especially the Gospels, were written to answer that very question, what does it look like when God is here? What does it look like when God is in charge? The story of Jesus is really the story of that. God is here, God is in charge. But this is what the disciples are struggling with. And if you were honest this morning, this is what you and I struggle with as well. And that is this, that what we think God should be doing he often doesn't do. And Jesus shows up not the way that we thought, but the way that we needed. And that is what's happening in this text. Jesus has set himself to go to Jerusalem. And I've told you this two weeks ago, but this is the, this is the, the, the worry of the disciples because the most amount of people who want to do the most amount of harm to Jesus, are waiting for him at Jerusalem. And Jesus, the Bible is saying, has set his face like a flint. He's unflinching. He's going. And he's going because he's going for a purpose. And what is the purpose? The purpose is that he would die on the cross for the sins of the world, that they would lay him in a grave, and three days later he would rise from the dead. 
And he's telling the disciples this, and the disciples are saying, no, that can't really be the case. What, what really is the case is that you are the, you're the king. You're the Messiah. We are going to sit and rule with you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I have come into the world, and I am here the way you need me to be, not the way you necessarily want me to be. And so verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, and when they came nigh to Jerusalem, Unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. He sendeth forth. Jesus sends two of his disciples and he says to them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as ye enter into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, they found the colt tied by the door, without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood by there said unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus. And they cast their garments on him. And he sat upon him. And they spread their garments in the way. Look here. That's like they rolled out the red carpet for Jesus. That's how we would understand that. They're taking off their coats. It's, it's costing them something. And they're throwing it down so that Jesus can enter into Jerusalem in this victorious parade. They spread their garments in the way, verse 8. Others cut down branches off trees. They sawed them in the way. And they went before, and they followed behind. And they cried, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And he looked round about upon all things. And the eventide was come. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Our Heavenly Father, use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. This text is what it looks like when God is taking charge. This is known as Palm Sunday. It's the final week of the life of Jesus Christ. He's entering into Jerusalem. There's this large triumphant parade that is announcing his coming. And everything that Jesus is doing, I want you to know this. Everything that Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing on purpose. Everything that Jesus is doing, Jesus is doing on purpose. He is wasting none of this. I want you to know this in your own heart, in your own life. Everything that God is up to, He is up to on purpose. Everything that God is doing, He is doing on purpose. There are no accidents in your life. Nothing just happens. Nothing's just uh, a victim of circumstance. Everything that God is doing, he is doing on purpose. We're seeing that even here. 
One of the things that I hear people say often is they'll say things like, well, I just don't see any purpose in this. What's the point? It might be in their marriage. It may be in some relationship. It, it might be something in their career. It, it, it may be something even spiritual. They'll say, well, what's the purpose? I, I, I'm doing all of this. I'm, I'm working in all these ways. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to help people. I just don't see the point. What's the purpose? It's in, it's in my opinion, after being a pastor for almost 13 years now, that most people don't hate the work. Most people don't hate the effort. Most people are even willing to go through the pain. They, they can endure a lot as long as they know that there is a purpose. It's when we don't know what the purpose is that we find our frustration. In fact, people do all kinds of painful things for a purpose. There, there are people who will, they will pay money to run in a marathon, which is incredibly painful because of the purpose. There's a, there's a sense of fulfillment. There's a sense of health. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of accomplishment. And so they're going to pay good money to run in a marathon, which is going to be painful because they, there's a purpose for it. My, my wife, Amanda, she, she has blessed our family with four children. I was there for all four of them. I passed out one time. What they tell me is they tell me that having a baby is very painful. I'm just taking it on her testimony. It's painful, but there's a purpose. And when they hand you that baby for the very first time, it's worth it. You see, people don't mind the work. They don't mind the effort. They don't hate the pain. They can endure a lot if they know that there is a purpose. And that's what's happening in this text. And Jesus is coming in to the disciples' world and he is turning it upside down. And he is helping them realize that he has a purpose. But the purposes that Jesus has is not the same, are not the same purposes that the disciples have or that the crowd of that day has. And Jesus very seldom comes the way that you think he should come. But Jesus always comes the way you need him to come. Jesus very seldom does what you think he ought to be doing. But Jesus always does what he knows is best for you. And notice it in the text. It's found in really three ways. Notice that Jesus is directing them. And so it is, Jesus directs us. This is really verse 1, 2, and 3. Jesus says, hey, we're going to get to, the, to Jerusalem. You're, you're going you're to come down the Mount of Olives. You're going to go into the village that is over against you. And as soon as you enter into it, you're going to find a cult. It's a cult tied whereon never man sat. Loose him, bring him to me. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing with this cult? You'll say to him, the Lord hath need of him. And straightway, he will send him hither. Jesus here is speaking emphatically. He's saying, this is the way it will be. This is what is going to happen. 
He is speaking emphatically. He is, look, he is speaking with absolute knowledge. It's the omniscience that he has here, you might say. He knows what is going to happen. And in so doing, he is giving the disciples every link in the chain. And he is showing them, and he is showing you and me, that he is in complete control. He is in absolute control of the situation. Nothing about what is about to take place. Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Jesus' scourging, his mocking, Jesus' crucifixion. None of it is out of his control. He is in full, total, complete control. I like that about God. He's got the whole world in his hands. It feels like sometimes that the world is out of control. But that's simply because it's out of your control. It's out of my control. Not because it's out of his control. We like to think that we have control. But the reality is we have very little control. There's very little about your day today that you actually have control of. I mean, you, you may have plans, you may have ideas, you may have things you want to do, but you and I have very little control over whether those things will truly happen, but not so with God and not so with Christ. He's in complete control. And notice this, what he is asking from the disciples. He is giving them the direction, he is showing them, I am in control, and he is asking them to trust him. And you know what God is asking you this morning? With your health, with your marriage, with your finances, with your attitude, with your entertainments, with your relationships. You know what God is asking you? He's asking you and he's asking me for us to trust him. Now trusting God requires two things. Trusting God requires two things. Write them down. First, to trust God requires that we have humility. To trust God requires that we have humility. Now this is, this is important here because the irony for the disciples is this. You remember a few weeks ago, the disciples have all these visions of, being, of sitting on the right hand of Jesus in glory. The disciples have all these visions of being put in places with power, of places with influence, of being somebody that everybody thinks about as somebody. They want the crown, that's what they want. And Christ is saying, you, you don't get the crown without the cross. And so the irony here is that the disciples who are thinking only about glory, who are thinking only about importance, are being asked to be donkey fetchers. You think about that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not calling you to glory. I'm calling you to go pick up the donkey in the city. That's what I'm calling you to do. My, my purpose for you is that you, you, you're not sitting to the, to the right hand or the left of me in my kingdom. My, my purpose for you is that you would go into Jerusalem, find an animal, and bring him back to me. Now, how humbling is that? You see, trusting God requires humility. And the disciples, they don't want to show humility. And if you and I were honest in our own hearts and lives, we don't want to show humility either. 
We know exactly what God ought to be doing, and we know exactly what everyone else ought to be doing, and if everyone else and if God were doing what we thought, then all the world would be fine. That's a sense of pride. That's a sense of self-righteousness. That's a sense of saying, that's a lack of self-awareness. That's thinking that you know all about all that there is to know. And the reality is, you and I don't. You cannot know it all, because you do not know it all, and yet God does. And so what God is asking us is he's asking us to trust him. But in order for us to trust him, we must be humble. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, verse 6. Lean not unto your own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. He shall direct your path. When? When you are not leaning to your own understanding, but when you are acknowledging, when you are trusting him. Trusting God requires humility. The lack of humility on the part of many Christians keeps Christians from growing in their spiritual maturity. Because we won't be humble, we can't grow. Because we think we know it all, we can't grow. Because the person who thinks he knows it all, the person who thinks that he has a, arrived, he has made it, well, that person doesn't look for the answers. They aren't trying to learn. They aren't asking for wisdom because they think they already have it all. Do you see? Trusting God requires humility. It requires you and me being willing to say to God, we don't know it all. We need wisdom. We need to know from you. I don't know what to do next in my relationship. I don't know what to do next with my parenting. I need humility in my life. And if you and I will humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord in this way, the Bible is saying that God will lift us up. He will give us the wisdom, the strength that we need in order to do what he's accomplished us to do. So Jesus is directing, he's asking the disciples to trust him. Trusting God requires, first, humility. Second, trusting God requires that we have faith. It requires that we have faith. Now this seems, in, it, this seems incredible to me because sometimes we read the stories in the Bible and we're so familiar with maybe the overarching narrative of the story that we, we miss the reality of what it must have been like. So, so think about the reality of this. Jesus is saying to the disciples, go into the city. You're going to find an animal, which was the, the means and the mode of transportation. He's saying, go into the city, you're going to find this means of transportation, and you're going to untie it. It doesn't belong to you. you don't, you're not going to purchase it. You're just going to untie it. You're not going to ask permission. You're not going to borrow it and sign a lease. You're just going to untie it and bring it to me. And if the owner asks you what you're doing, just say to him, the Lord needs it. Okay, now I want you to, to really get a grasp of how difficult this must have been. I want you to try this very same thing this afternoon in Costco parking lot with a blue Honda. Just walk into the parking lot, find a blue Honda, and just get in it. And if someone says to you, hey, what are you doing? That's my car, dude. Just go, the Lord hath need of it. You see how it works out. Just see what happens to you. And of course, you and I in our right minds are going, there's no way I would do that. You see? What is being asked of the disciples? Faith. Faith. 
Jesus is directing them, yes. But in order for them to receive the direction from him, they must first demonstrate humility. They do not know it all. And then second, they must demonstrate faith in what Jesus is saying. They must lay down their own inclinations. They must be laying down even their own reservations. They must be laying this down and they must be stepping into the realm of faith. This passage is showing us that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where he's heading. He is orchestrating all of these events. He is in complete control of all that is happening. He is handling every detail not only of his life and not only of glory, but he is handling every detail of your life. He is handling every detail of your life. And there are many who will be saying this morning, well, I want the Lord to direct me. I want the Lord to guide my life. But then this is a, this is a straight contrast. There's a correlation between the Lord's direction in your heart and your life and in my heart and in my life and our humility and our faith in the Lord. There's a direct correlation to the degree that we are not humbling ourselves and to the degree that we are not living by faith. We are not receiving the direction from the Lord. But to the degree that we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we step out in faith, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. To that degree, God will be directing your life, your marriage, your choices, your future. And God will be giving you the wisdom you need because you are not counting on yourself for it, but you are counting on him. Notice... God, or Jesus here, is directing us. But I want to tell you this. This is the second point. That before God does something with us, he does something in us. And the thing in us that he is doing is producing humility and producing faith. And as we grow in humility and faith, as we allow God to do a work in us, listen very closely, as we allow God to do a work in us, then God does a work with us. But if we are rejecting the work that God is doing in us, if we are rejecting it by, by not being humble, but by being prideful, by, by not walking in faith, but by walking in our own wisdom, by not, by not trusting, but by demanding, if we are not if we are not humbling ourselves and walking in faith, if we are rejecting the work God is doing in us, then God will not be doing a work with us. And this is what you're seeing here. That before God does something with the disciples, God does something in the disciples. And they let God have his way in them. And then notice verse 4 through verse 7, God is now involving them in his work. So here's what he says in verse number, verse number four. And they went their way. So, so I want to tell you this. Watch. Had the disciples not responded with humility and had the disciples not responded in faith, then guess what? You wouldn't be reading verse number four, that they went their way. You, what you would be reading is, and the disciples sat down and they tried to talk Jesus out of this very crazy idea of taking somebody else's donkey. And that's not what it says. 
They went their way. They found the colt tied by the door without a place where the two ways met and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, what do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto him, even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. They cast their garments on him and he sat upon them. James says this in his letter to the churches, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith without works is dead. In other words, faith has to be, it has to be animated. You have to step out. there's, There's a required action with faith. And what is the required action? What is the involvement that Jesus is asking from you and from me? Here's the involvement. There's two things. First, he's asking us to be involved, which requires that we be courageous. They had to be courageous. They had to be bold. They had to have the courage to go down to the way where the colt was tied. They had to find the courage to untie the colt without asking for permission. They had to have then the boldness that whenever someone would stop them, that they would say to him exactly what Jesus told them to say and that they would be able to bring the cult to him again. So it is with the work that God wants to do with you. The work that God wants to do with you requires courage from you. The work that God wants to do with you requires courage from you. This is why over and over in the Bible you are reading phrases like, do not fear, fear not, do not be afraid, find courage Not in your own self, not in your own ability, but find courage in the one who has called you to the work. Find courage. Take up courage. Be strong, Joshua is saying, and very courageous. The work that God wants to do with you requires courage from you. And if you are waiting to have all the answers, if you are waiting to have all the boxes checked, if you are waiting to know how it all may go one way, then you will stand at the brink of what God is purposing for you and you will never step forward into it. You must find yourself courageous. This is is necessary in the day and age in which we live. When there are so many people who love to use all kinds of means of intimidation and name-calling and putting of down and shaming in order to try to get us to not believe and do what God is calling us to do. This is the game. The game that is played is that we would just shame you, get you to be quiet, not let you say something, not let you speak up, and cause you to sit in fear and worry of what may happen, which prevents you and I from stepping out and doing what God has purposed us to do. So God is is involving us in his work, but I will tell you this, the involvement in the work requires courage. So be Courageous. 
Be courageous. Our involvement in the work also, however, requires obedience. This is what the text is telling us. And they went their way. They didn't deviate from the plan. They, they, they say exactly what Jesus told them to say. And how often are we, when we are obeying God, that the devil fills our heads with all kinds of reasons why we ought not to be obeying him. All kinds of doubts concerning the word of God, the direction of God, the purposes of God. We, we suppose, well, this may happen or that may happen. And look, very rarely does any of those things ever happen. We're just borrowing trouble. And so they go. They are courageous and they are obedient. They find the colt right where the colt, where Jesus said the colt would be. And they bring the colt to Jesus. And watch this. Jesus jumps onto the colt that has never been ridden. It's an unbroken beast. And you know what happens? the cult surrenders to the will of its creator. And here is the key to guidance and involvement. The key to involvement in the purposes that God has is surrender. Maybe this beast, this donkey in Mark 11... Maybe this donkey is more surrendered to God's will than you and I are. This, this untamed, un, the Bible says, a cult where never a man sat. This untamed, untrained animal is obedient to its creator. Are you? Am I? Or do we find ourselves kicking and bucking and screaming and yelling and rejecting the work that God is doing? Watch. In us and with us. In us and with us. And Jesus is directing. Jesus is second involving. But let me give you this last one. Jesus is confronting. And this is where it gets incredibly more difficult. Because what, what we think God should do isn't often what God does do. And he is confronting us in this way. So notice the text. The text says as they come down the way, they're throwing garments, they're cutting down branches. We went to Israel a few years ago. We walked this very road. And many of you who went to Israel with us, you'll remember this journey. As you walk down, the, 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 the valley sits in the middle. Jerusalem and the temple, Mount on this side, Mount of Olives on this side. And the valley sits almost this way. It's almost a V shape. It's straight down on both sides. So that if you were in the temple, you would be able to look across to the Mount of Olives and you would see see very clearly exactly what was happening on that, that road, that Via Della Rosa, on that road that led all the way to Jerusalem. You'd be able to see it. And that's really the point. Jesus wants them to see him coming in this way, as you'll note in a minute. But as, as they're making their way, here come all these people. They're before verse 9. They went before and they followed behind. 
So there's all these people around Jesus, and what are they doing? They are saying, they are singing, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. So they're literally saying Hosanna, which means save now. That's what the word Hosanna means. Hosanna, save now. And they're lifting up Jesus with their praise. They're lifting up Jesus with their life. They're lifting up Jesus with their cloaks. They're, they're, they've made this little makeshift saddle for him. They've rolled out the red carpet. And what they're saying is, Jesus is coming to save us. He's coming to build a kingdom. He's coming to establish the kingdom of David. And then the text says, he entered into Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And at evening time, he went out. Wait, what happened to the kingdom? What, what happened to Jesus is coming to save us? What, what, what happened to... Jesus setting up his own kingdom right here in Jerusalem. What happened to bringing Israel back to its political and national power? What happened to getting Rome out of here? We don't want to be under their rule. What happened to sitting on the right hand and the left when you march into your palace? Do you see? They are thinking Jesus is coming to do this. And Jesus is confronting them that what they think he should be doing, he isn't going to do. He isn't doing what they want. He is doing what they need. He isn't coming to save them from Rome. He's coming to save them from their sin. You say, well, why does Jesus come this way? Let me give you a couple of reasons why. First, he's coming to fulfill prophecy. I won't, I won't expound that point. Maybe we'll do it later. Second, he's coming so that he might enter into Jerusalem publicly. He wants them to see him coming. This is, this is actually just kind of wise for Jesus. You'll remember that they're, they're, they're manipulating the chief priests, the scribes. They're manipulating ways that they can take him out. I remember I already told you at the beginning of this sermon, the most amount of people who want to do the most amount of harm to Jesus are there in the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus is marching in. He wants everybody to see him arrive. He's fulfilling prophecy as he does. And then third, it's because Jesus is identifying himself peacefully. Jesus doesn't march into Jerusalem proudly. He's not coming into Jerusalem on a war horse. He's coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of peacemaking. This is an aspect of Jesus' triumphal entry that's often completely overlooked. Here's what they want. They want Jesus to come and reestablish the kingdom of David. That's what they're saying in verse, uh, verse number 10, verse, verse number 9 and verse number 10. Jesus is being accompanied by his 12 disciples. There's all this buzz in the air. He's headed for the temple. 
He's going to march in the temple and he's going to call down fire like Elijah and Elisha. He's going to perform these great Old Testament miracles. He's going to kick the Romans out of their sacred space. He's going to lead a revolt. He's going to build an earthly kingdom just like they always wanted. You, you remember this. You, you remember in the study of Mark when Jesus performs the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000? You'll remember that they, the Bible tells us that they come to take Jesus by force and make him a king. And you'll remember Jesus is retreating from that. Because he knew that they thought they knew what a king was supposed to do. But that's not what he had come to do. He came to answer their cry for salvation with a deeper, better, and truer salvation than they even knew that they needed. He came to deliver his people not from Rome, but from their sins. He did come to make war, but he did not come to make war with the kind of people that they thought he was going to make war against. Now Jesus came to make war with Satan and sin and death and hell. Jesus came to take his throne. But his throne would begin at the cross. Jesus came not the way they wanted, but the way they needed And so it is in your heart and in my heart. So it is in your life and in my life. That oftentimes that the purposes that God is accomplishing in us and with us. They confront us. Because we think we know what God ought to be doing. But we are not God. He is. Find your place in Isaiah, it's, it's the Old Testament. We, we read this chapter, we read the, the later verses of this that earlier for the call to worship this morning. But look at verse 55, or chapter 55 of, of Isaiah. Isaiah 55. Look with me in verse number 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and snow from heaven and return not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it to bring forth the bud and to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. 
The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all of the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. And instead of the thorn shall come up a fir tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you understand? That what God is doing in our lives, what God is doing in your life, what God is doing in our world is serving his eternal purposes. That he is confronting us. That he is asking us to follow him. To have humility and faith in him. To trust him. He is asking us then to surrender our will to him. To serve him courageously and obediently right where he has placed us. Why? Because he is doing something far greater than you and I could ever know. That is why. And so it is. That oftentimes God is asking you and me. To endure in this life. Particular hardships. Particular seasons. He is asking us to endure them as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Because you do not know all that he knows. Your ways are not his ways. My thoughts are not his thoughts. So we should find ourselves humbly, obediently, courageously trusting him. He marches all the way to Jerusalem. He comes into the temple. And all the people around him are sitting there thinking, now is the moment. Here we go. Jesus looks around at the temple. And he turns around and leaves. Why? Well, because he was going to reign. But he was going to reign from the cross. If you're here this morning and you're asking, well, Pastor, why, does, why is God going to reign from the cross? And here's the answer. Because there is no other way that you and I can have salvation apart from the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No man can get to God except through Jesus. That's it. Let me give you a word of warning here. First, be sure that you know the gospel. Because this is the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that alone is sufficient. And that alone is sufficient to give us a right relationship with God. Pardon from our sin and a home in heaven with him. Have you believed the gospel? I'm not asking you if you've been religious. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you help the poor. I'm asking you, have you believed on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sins and your self-righteousness and believe wholly, fully on Christ? Second, there's a word of warning here. And the word of warning is this. That there's all kinds of people who are really passionate about the Bible. Who quote the Bible. But they do not know the Bible. You know what the people who are in front of Jesus and behind Jesus, you know what they're quoting? Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know what they're quoting? They're quoting the Old Testament. They're quoting verses from the Bible. But listen, they don't actually know what those verses mean. 
How many of you know this? There's lots of people who know verses from the Bible, but they don't know the Bible. And that's what you're seeing in this passage. That the same people who, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, are quoting the Bible, are the people who, a few days from this passage, will be chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The people who, on one day, are chanting, crown him, are saying the next day, crucify him. And so it is. That you and I can be spiritually gullible. That just because someone is passionate or just because someone quotes the Bible, they may still be, listen, this is going to be kind of offensive to some of you, but you need to hear me. Someone can be passionate about the Bible. Someone can quote the Bible, but they're still wrong. They're wrong. Because it's possible to twist the Bible in all kinds of ways to make it say what you want it to say. And there's all kinds of people in our world who are quoting the Bible. They have all kinds of passionate notions, but they do not know what it means. They think they're right, but they're wrong. Which is why it is necessary what Isaiah is saying. It is why it is necessary that we know the word of God. We hold the word of God. Why? Because the words that go forth from his mouth, that's the word of God, that transforms our hearts. And before Jesus will do a work with you, he must do a work in you. And the way he does his work in you is with his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And Father, we ask that you would do a work in us. Father, do a work in me. Give me the wisdom I need to lead my family, to love my wife, to lead this church, to be the right kind of friend, the right kind of neighbor. Father, do that in all of our hearts this morning and help us to realize that you have a purpose, you have a plan. And that in order for us to trust you in the purpose and plan, we must respond with humility, faith, courage, and obedience. We must respond with all of these things so that your purposes and plans will produce in us what you desire for them too. 